Well, let's flip in our Bibles over to the book of 1 Peter as we pick up our study from last time. 1 Peter 1.13, Peter wrote this, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, Be holy, because I am holy. The great 17th century mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal said this. He said, The serene beauty of a holy life is the most powerful influence in the world next to the power of God. Now, sadly, the idea of a holy life doesn't bring images of serene beauty to mind for many people in our day. Instead, it brings up images of hypocrisy and legalism and religious arrogance and stuffiness and spiritual grandstanding and heavy-handed preaching. It's a sad irony that things which are the very opposite of real holiness are the kinds of things that come to mind when people hear that word. Rather than it being a negative thing, as is often thought of in our day, true holiness is, as Pascal describes, it is beautiful, it is good, and it is truly a wonderful, positive influence in the world. People long to see true holiness exemplified in people's lives. We all despise hypocrisy. But when the real thing comes along, real holiness, it is truly a beautiful thing. Well, what is holiness? The word holy is used in the Bible a number of different ways. There is the idea of God being holy, meaning He's completely other and separate from us. There's the idea of God being holy, referring to the perfect moral purity of God, His total absence of sin. There's the idea of being a holy people, meaning God has set apart as special and unique as His own, a particular people. There is the idea of us, His people, living a holy life, meaning we are to be morally pure, turning away from sin and pursuing the righteousness of God in our life. That's the kind of holiness that we'll be talking about today. Although these different uses of the word holy appear to be distinct, they're actually all related and different expressions of the same fundamental idea. It begins with God and His nature. He is holy. He's unique and separate from His creation. He is absolutely pure and perfect. Those who have been born again in Christ are now children of God. And because we are God's children, we're to have the same character and nature as our Heavenly Father. We're to be holy. Speaking of practical holiness in the life of the believer. Jerry Bridges, in his classic book on the subject, The Pursuit of Holiness, defines, he defined holiness this way. He wrote, holiness is not a series of do's and don'ts, but conformity to the character of God and obedience to the will of God. Peter, he uses another word in his letter of 1 Peter in addition to holy, when talking about the nature and character of God and the nature and character that we're to have, the word he uses is good. God is good and his children are to be good. 
And I think that word good is a helpful word for us to keep in mind when we are thinking about holiness because it redirects our thinking away from these negative stereotypes that have attached themselves to holiness and it brings it into this fresh, positive idea of what holiness truly is to be. Holiness is absolutely good in every way. Holy behavior is good behavior. The word holy, it's not an equivalent to the word good. It's more than good. It includes more than good. But when we're talking about living a holy life, the word good carries a similar meaning. And I think it's helpful, helpful for us to keep that idea in mind. We're continuing our study through the book of 1 Peter. And we're picking up here in verse 13. Peter begins 13. This way he says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. And when we get to that first word, therefore, we want to pause because there is an old Bible study adage that says, whenever you see a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. What is it that Peter has just written to us in his letter that he's referring to with therefore. It's important for us to have that stuff in mind as we proceed because it serves as our motivation to do the things said in verses 13 through 16, our motivation for living a holy life. So to review what we have learned in the verses preceding, verses 3 through 12, which we talked about last time, I want to review that for us quickly. Verse 3, God has extended His great mercy to us, and this is not a small thing because if he had not simp- if he had simply given us what we deserve, we wouldn't even be here to talk about any of this stuff. He would have just spoken us all out of existence as quickly and as easily as he spoke us into existence because we, if we got what we deserve, we would not be here. But it is his great mercy that has been extended to us, which makes all of this other good possible, which is mentioned in the rest of this passage. God, in verse 3, says He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're told in Ephesians 2.11 that we were once separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in heaven, cut out of the promises of God, without hope and without God. That's the state of every human being outside of Jesus Christ. But now we have hope, a living hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has made a new life possible for us. We have hope for a new future, to be changed from what we were to what we are becoming, to overcome death and to enter paradise. To use the words of the old Tim Buck Three song, our future is so bright we've got to wear shades. Verse 4, God has given us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. What is this inheritance we've been given? Well, we don't know yet all that it includes, but it will exceed our expectations and our imaginings. It will completely satisfy every hunger and longing of our heart. It will be so vast and so wonderful that it will take an eternity to explore and enjoy. And then verse 5, we are shielded, it tells us, guarded, protected by God's power 
so that we can know with confidence that we will certainly take possession of all that God has promised to give us. So you can be promised the moon, but if it's impossible for you to ever take hold of it, then the promise isn't worth very much. But God himself is making sure that we will actually take hold of what he's promised to give us. And then verses 6 through 9, even our difficulties and troubles in this life are being used to accomplish something wonderful, the refining of our faith. And our faith has our salvation as its goal. And then finally in verses 10 through 12, the salvation we are receiving. It has been the grand mystery of mysteries throughout the ages, intriguing God's prophets and angels alike. But it has been made known, and we are the recipients of this amazing salvation now in our very lifetime. Therefore, verse 13, therefore, in view of what I, Peter, have just written to you, or taking into consideration what I, Peter, have just written to you, your response and reaction to these things should be have minds that are alert. Be fully sober. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you have lived that you had when you were lived in ignorance, but just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For as it is written, be holy because I am holy. Or to put it in very simple terms, our response to what God has done for us should be to pursue a life that imitates His own beautiful, good, holy character. Well, let's take a look at this passage in a little more detail. It says, therefore, with minds that are alert. The Greek literally says, gird up the loins of your mind, which is a saying that is completely, entirely lost in our modern world. So, most of the modern English translations give us the sense of the text rather than the direct translation of it. That term, gird up the loins of your garment, meant to gather up the loose hanging parts of your garment and tuck them into your belt so that you're ready for action, able to move freely and quickly. So here Peter, he tells us to do that with our mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Gather up your mind, making yourself ready for action, prepared to respond to whatever comes. One Bible scholar suggests that a modern English idiom that would be a close equivalent would be, pull yourself together. Another expression in our day from sports that's similar is, get your head in the game. Same idea. This, there's, a, there's a way, though, of living that makes a person dull to the reality of God. It is as if we are spiritually sleepwalking through life. We are just going with the flow of everything around us. We're taken up with all the same stuff that everyone else is taken up with. We're chasing the same goals. We're motivated by the same things. We are walking the same paths. We are behaving the same way. We are living by the same rules as everyone else around us. That kind of living is the Polar opposite of the kind of living that Peter is exhorting us to live in this passage. Paul, he says a similar thing, a little different way in the letter of Romans. In Romans 13, 11, he says, 
And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. An example of someone who had prepared his mind for action in the secular realm was Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is arguably the greatest detective character in history. He was able to solve any crime and crimes that no one else would be able to solve. One of the things that made him so great, if you read his stories was his single-mindedness as a detective. He refused to learn or remember or study or get involved in any way with anything that was not clearly related to his work as a detective. One of the things that that Watson, his faithful assistant, remarked about on more than one occasion was Holmes' lack of knowledge of certain things, like politics, for example. Watson asked Holmes once about this, and Holmes told him that he believed he had a limited amount of usable intellect and therefore did not want to waste it on anything other than things that were to a benefit to his work as a detective. He felt it was useless, useless information that would just clutter up his mind. Well, Sherlock Holmes was not a real person, of course. You did know that, right? He was a fictional character created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But we ought to have a single-mindedness for the Lord like Sherlock Holmes had for his detective work. Now, don't answer this question out loud, but how cluttered is your mind? We live in an age of intense distractions. Our minds look like one of those reality TV episodes about hoarders. I mean, stuff is stacked to the ceiling in every room of our mind, and it's crammed in every possible space. And most of it is useless junk. We wonder why we have trouble remembering things. We wonder why we have trouble focusing. We wonder why we have the attention span of a goldfish Could it be because our minds are so cluttered, so distracted, so jammed with junk? First Peter wrote later in this letter in chapter 5, verse 8, he said, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Going back to verse 13, it says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. The Greek words translated into English as fully sober mean to be completely free of any form of excess or drunkenness, literally or figuratively. To to be free from the control of any outside influences, distractions, or compulsions. Some of the English translations of this particular passage use the words sober-mindedness. Others use the words self-control, all part of this idea that we're talking about here. 
the biggest and most important battles we face are waged in our minds. That's where our actions are given birth. That's where we make the important choices about who we're going to be and how we're going to live. That's where the battles of character are won and lost, in our mind. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Peter repeats his admonition about being sober-minded and self-controlled so that we can pray. Effective prayer requires sober-mindedness and self-control. One of the hardest things for me when praying is to maintain my focus and concentration. My mind is constantly wanting to wander onto other things. Self-control and sober-mindedness are needed to combat the wandering. Self-control and Sober-mindedness are like the spokes of a bike wheel. As some of you know, uh, one of my hobbies is mountain biking. I like getting off the busy road onto the single track dirt trails up in the hills. I like the outdoors, the absence of the concrete and the pavement, the scenery, the wildlife, the physical challenge. Well, I remember a number of years ago, I was out riding on a trail and noticed my bike felt very wobbly and unstable. And my first thought was that I had a flat tire. So I stopped, I checked my tires, they were fine. I got back on my bike, I started riding again. But there was still something definitely not right about my bike. It was almost unrideable. It was so wobbly and unstable. So on further inspection, it turned out that the problem was loose spokes. A number of the spokes on my rear wheel had gotten really loose. Well, fortunately... I carry a little set of emergency tools with me when I'm out on the trail, so I was able to tighten my spokes on the wheel and I was back in business. Self-control and sober-mindedness are like the spokes on the wheel of my bike. When I let my discipline get lax and my mind get full of distraction and clutter, my life starts getting wobbly. The spokes keep the center hub firmly in place at the center of the bike wheel. And in a similar way, self-control and sober-mindedness, they keep the hub of my life, Jesus Christ, firmly in the center of my life. The latter part of verse 13, Peter says, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. This is very important for us to keep in mind as we are seeking to live a holy life. One of the dangers we face in our desire to please our Heavenly Father is to begin thinking that, well, He loves me because I'm doing this or that thing, or He will only love me and bless me if I do this or that thing. We never want to forget that we are saved by God's mercy and grace rather than our merit. It is the work that Jesus has done for us rather than anything that we have done or we are doing or that we are going to do. It's Him. Christian, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. That is what gives us hope. is His grace. Not our performance. 
He continues in verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. There is a big important idea here in the way that Peter refers to us that I don't want us to miss. He calls us children of God because that's what we are when we are born again in Christ. The essence of living a holy life is our living as obedient children of our Heavenly Father. It really is not any more complicated than that. It is a simple question of obedience. Are we obeying our Father? There was a time when we didn't know any better about how to behave. We lived in ignorance, as Peter says here. But we know better now. The Lord has brought us to life spiritually. He has adopted us as His children. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are not the same people anymore. We are Jesus' people now. He says, do not conform to the evil desires that you had. The word translated conform, it means to be formed or molded or shaped to a particular pattern. In this case, we're talking about our thinking and our behavior. Paul, he uses that same word, giving a very similar instruction to us in Romans 12, too, where he wrote, do not conform, same word, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've been talking about the importance of our mind already. That it starts there. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Verse 15. But you, excuse me, but just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Why should we live a holy life? Because that's the nature of our Father. He's holy. Because He's holy, we should be holy too. Be holy, He said, because I'm holy. Be holy because I'm holy. Like Father, like Son. There was a an anti-smoking commercial on television when I was a kid that used to use that saying, like father, like son, to make its point. Some of you might remember that commercial. Some of you who, you know, you've gone into the museums, maybe you've seen this commercial. <laughs> but in the commercial, it, it shows this little boy, he's watching and imitating everything that his dad is doing. His dad is painting the house, and the little boy, he's shown painting the house with water in his his toy brush, and the narrator comes on and says, like father, like son. The dad, he's driving the car, and the little guy's sitting in the passenger seat, and he's driving in his little toy steering wheel, and the narrator says, like father, like son. Then the dad, he sticks his arm out the window to signal that he's going to make a turn, and the little guy, he sees his dad do that, and he sticks his little arm out the window, signaling like he's going to make a turn, like father, like son. They're walking together on this country road and the dad, he reaches down, he picks up a rock and he throws it. The little guy, he sees that. He stops, he picks up a rock and he throws it. Like father, like son. Then they come and they are sitting against a tree out in a field. And the dad, he pulls out a pack of cigarettes. Takes one out, lights it up, sets a pack of cigarettes down by him little boy he's watching his dad do that and he goes to reach for the pack of cigarettes and the narrator goes like father like son and then you're supposed to go duh, 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 duh. you know and that's like uh, the big point was made 
Well, we are to imitate our Heavenly Father, like Father, like Son. But the wonderful thing about our Heavenly Father is that He's perfect. He's good, He's absolutely good, and He's always good. And He's worth imitating in every respect. We find this same teaching all over in the Scripture. For example, in Matthew 5:48, Jesus himself said, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ephesians 5:1 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Peter writes here, he says, be holy in all you do. In every aspect of our life, we should seek to be holy, to imitate our Heavenly Father's goodness. We're talking about a fundamental change in the way that we think about everything. Being holy is not something we do sometimes in certain situations. It's who we are as a child of God now. If our approach to being holy is to behave in a holy way when we think it's expected of us or at appropriate times and then we let our hair down, so to speak, the rest of the time, then we're really completely misunderstanding what Peter's seeking to teach us. He's trying to get us to understand that we are fundamentally different people when we receive this salvation that he's talking about. We are given new birth into a living hope. We've been brought to life spiritually. We have the Holy Spirit in us, growing this new life in us. The nature of this new life is holiness. It's not something that we turn on and off at will. It's who we are in Jesus Christ. When we are not seeking to live a holy life, we are literally denying who we are. We are going against our fundamental nature as a child of God. In closing, I, I just want to say this, is that holiness is not a set of things to do and not do. It's about understanding who we are. A child of God. And living like it. Let's live like God's children. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for saving us, for making us your children, for giving us this new nature of holiness. And Lord, I pray for all of us, myself, uh, included, Lord, that we would live out this new nature that you've given us, that we would seek to be holy in our behavior, in our thinking, Lord, that we would seek to be like you, that we would seek to imitate you, to be like you in character. We ask that you would continue your, your good work in us, Lord, as you are continuing to change us and transform us and make us into the image of your son, Jesus. We ask that you would continue that good work. We thank you for it. I ask that you would bless us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.